Hello and welcome to Unpacking Contract Law, the UK-based contract law podcast delivering unsolicited opinions on new and old contract law cases. The purpose of these podcasts is to provide you with an insight into our thoughts, ideas and ideologies around all things contract law. It also provides us with an outlet for all our opinions, so you listen at your own peril. Each podcast will feature a new contract law case with a discussion from three contract law enthusiasts. And it is thus my great pleasure to introduce you to Maggie Hemsworth, Severine Santier, and myself, Tim Dodsworth. Welcome to Unpacking Contract Law. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. This is our uh, podcast number 21. And I am with Maggie Hemsworth and Dr. Tom, Dr. Tim Dodsworth, even. Sorry. Maybe Tom, yeah. you can call me whatever you want, Severine. It's, it's fine. <laughs> you'd think she'd know him by I know, now. Yeah, you. You'd think we're strangers, really. Yeah. <laughs> what a good start to podcast 21. Today, we are going to... Um, you should be a stopped from now on calling me Tom. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Maybe, maybe that, that can one. be the new, you know, team. Yeah, no, we've, got our, our, we've got our tagline. <laughs> yeah, that's already. it. You know, you, two you, minutes you... in, we've got our Yeah, text we've got the already. headline. And now for today, with special appearance of Tom. <laughs> <laughs> okay, see you slowly. Uh, <laughs> Let's get back. Seriously? So, our podcast number 21. Thank you very much to uh, Newcastle Law School for continuing to sponsor us very generously. And today we are looking at uh, Baird Textile and Marks and Spencer. Uh, it's a case that I had forgotten how nice it is actually. So it's really nice sometimes to just go back to some uh, older cases to remind us how the law has uh, developed and how important those cases are. The facts are quite simple for a change. Uh, Baird Textile and Marks and Spencers had been uh, doing business together for over 30 years. One day in October, Marks and Spencer, without notice, ended all supply uh, arrangement. Baird was supplying them with clothes. And in October 1999, without notice, Marks and Spencer ended all their supply arrangement, telling Baird that this would take effect at the end of the current production season. Baird decided to sue Marks and Spencer, arguing that actually Marks and Spencer should have given them a notice. And uh, they were arguing that even though there was no formal contract which had been entered for their relationship together for the last 30 years, I repeat the word 30 years, there was an implied contract between them. And that following that implied contract, Marks and Spencer should have given them three years notice. An alternative on their legal action was that if the implied contract route failed, that Marks and Spencer should still be prevented from ending without notice on the strength of an estoppel on giving them a three years notice, etc., etc. Baird and Baird Textile also sued for damages. So 
a really the court. So there was a summary judgment by Justice Morrison, who gave reason to Marks and Spencer's, the two possible actions for bed and textile were not successful, but nevertheless allowed for the matter to come before the court in relation to the estoppel argument. The Court of Appeal confirmed the summary judgment of Morrison, and we have a very prestigious court. We have the Vice-Chancellor, Lord Justice Judge, and Lord Justice Mance, and this is a unanimous decision on both ground. So what do we think of this decision? Harsh decision. How can there be no contract when they had been doing business together for the last 30 years? I should say that the argument for Baird to say that there was an implied contract between uh, them was on a very precise term that Marks and Spencer should acquire contract garments from Baird in quantities and at price which in all circumstances were reasonable. Do we have enough certainty? Do we have an intention to create legal relationship? Unanimous decision that we do not. And on estoppel, we do not need to learn from our Australian colleagues. And it also fails. So a lot to discuss, I think. What do we think? A good decision? The right decision? The wrong decision? Tim, Maggie, what do you think? Silence. <laughs> yeah. I'm, not, I'm looking at Tim. I think he was about to say something, so I'm not rudely interrupted. Was that a thought marching our way? Okay, so I, I and so generally, I think I, I surprisingly, I actually agree with the with the decision. The, the the part I think that keeps bouncing around my head is is this is this justification or the justification that the parties deliberately didn't enter into a contract. I mean, this is this is something that's quite fascinating to me. Is well, we want. A contract is going to make our relationship too rigid. So we are going to deliberately decide not to have a contract in order to not be governed by these principles. And so we can really give way to our long-term relationship. So what does that tell us about one co- what contract law, according to M&S and Baird, Baird would actually doing? So that, that's one of the things that, that, that really interests me in this scenario is that I, I can absolutely see the justification there of saying... If we get a contract here, then it's going to start making things less of a relationship, right? That's, but we, that's we have at to, the beginning. Yeah, but we have to stop and think about the use of the word contract, you know? Yes, yes. Um, because business people, I think, use it in a different sense than the sort of legal idea of it. So I, I don't know if I'm reading too much into this, but I would say parties like M&S and Baird, when they say we deliberately didn't go into a contract, I think they probably meant we deliberately didn't instruct lawyers to draw up a written thing that we then signed. You know, exactly. that's what they really mean when they're talking about a contract. In fact, that's probably how the general public views contract. Whereas a lawyer would see contract as, as not necessarily a written thing at all, and it's much more intangible. So when we talk about they deliberately didn't go into a contract. We have to be very careful about that, I think, because that is then 
straying into the basic issue in this case, whether a contract is implied and it's implied as of necessity, given the way in which they were conducting themselves. So we stand back, if you like, from their sort of, we've talked about uh, intentions and subjectivity before, I think, but we sort of stand back from that and, and really try and judge objectively whether their conduct is such as to amount to a contract and of necessity, that's the only thing it can be. And the Court of Appeal, I think, were heavily reliant on, um, I, th- I think, the wise words of Lord Justice Bingham in the Aramis 1989 case, when he talks about the authorities on implied contracts and there being a requirement of necessity. But he then goes on to say, and it's fatal to that claim, if the parties would or might have acted in the same way without, and now I would interpose the word written contract. And in a sense, that is really the nub of this case. You know, they were jogging along together, as Severine said at the beginning, for 30 years, quite happily. And nobody saw the necessity or or the desirability, I would say, of going to the bother and expense and trying to sort of nail down all of these sorts of terms that then became a real live issue as soon as you've got a dispute. But that's, you know, right at the wrong end of the telescope, as it were. So to say there was no contract, there were a series of many, many contracts over 30 years. So every time MS put an order for a season's value of garments from bed and the uh, Courtauld, Viella, all the other people that they were using, that was a little contract, a valuable contract. And so there was excessive of those running for a 30-year period. And I think that's probably one of the factors that really undermines this idea that an umbrella contract, and that's really what we're talking about here, that is spanning a long period of time and that requires a lot of advance notice to suddenly terminate it, is necessary. It might be reasonable so far as Baird is concerned, it might, to use that horrible non-legal word fair, be fair, uh, that Joe Public might view it as fair, only fair that MS gave notice to Baird. But is it strictly necessary? And, and uh, the sort of pattern of 30 years prior really indicates that probably it isn't. Yes. It's really interesting, Maggie, to listen to what you've just said that indeed business people do not consider contract in the same way that lawyers do and this is a really nice plug for me to talk about relational contract because there was a little brief mention yeah yeah there was um, this very close relationship and the evidence that that they viewed it like a partnership but not in a legal sense they're sort of talking in a business sense yes Yeah, but that sadly that didn't help because I think it's the vice chancellor who mentioned it, and then Lord Justice Judge and Mans didn't mention it. But according to the vice chancellor, you know, relational contracts still have to abide by the contract law rules formation. And well, there's an argument whether the concept exists at all. I know that's going to be inflammatory to you, Severin. Yes, of course it exists. It's now it it it's now recognized. You know, its contour are not are not clear, but I think it is now. Well, it's know, just a very it, simplistic label, isn't it? For the type of contracts where the relationship is very close, 
and requires a great deal of cooperation. Okay, I think I think oh, we this is good. Learn. This is good. I'm enjoying this more than I should. <laughs> I'm just going to sit here and wait well, for this. Well, all tip. I'm saying is, let's not get hung up on the label. I think you know. I think this is perhaps for another podcast. But it, it, it of course. So you know, listeners, you know that I am a well. I think you know that I am a relation relationalist and and an advocate of a good faith. The, yeah, the two of the two of them go hand in hand. But it is really nice to hear what you are saying, Maggie, because I think I do, like you, Tim, I'm surprised that I do agree with the decision. Why Why are you surprised? Because I do remember bed and textile being one of those unfair decisions for what... Ah, you've word. used that horrible oh. word. I know, I know, sorry. In, in the sense of, you know, but re- that, that's why it's really interesting to actually read the decision. The decision makes sense. You know, you can't... You know, and and the three Lord Justices did mention the fact that you can't. The major flaw in Baird's argument was that the parties did really made a point, as we've said, that they did not want a legal contract to perhaps curtail some of their relationship. And so, therefore, to then imply that to then argue that there should be a contract, there is a major flaw. But well, I'm not, I'm not sure about that. Can I can I jump in on that one? Because I, I I found that was that was one of the points where they said and that's not that's not determinative that's not the fact that they didn't enter into that written agreement and maggie i, I think i'm getting close to agreeing with you the the you can see the fever can't you it's it's, uh, it's, it's letting, as i you say may need to lie down <laughs> I, I think so do you maggie <laughs> No, I don't need to lie down because I like it when I've persuaded someone. You, you, you know that by now. As my husband would say, she has to always be right. Agreeing, agreeing, and being persuaded two different things. Um, no, I think I think the fact that the the the, well, the one of the arguments that they're making is that it's not the fact that they didn't enter into that written agreement isn't determinative of it. And I think the real crux of the of of why I agree with 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 the case is that we we can't really sketch out what the terms would have been. Yes. And the case this reminds me of that 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 and I'm going to throw this in maybe it's too early and we, we should do that after the after the middle or something like that. But the the case that, that, that jumped to mind here for me was actually RTS flexible. Right. This idea yes. where, where 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 Denning says, well, you know, we, we can we can create a contract even you know we're going to find agreement because clearly the parties were in agreement and i think that's the difficulty here that in that case at least we had some terms to roll with they they could they could create it out of some here the vagueness of it right they're going to order some quantities but they really didn't have to order any quantities no, that, but they, it, they it makes it impossible that. really it, for the court uh, and, and remember that fundamental principle about freedom of contract the court's not role is not to design the contract for you or the one that you might have agreed if you were acting reasonably or sensibly or that horrible word fairly. Uh, that's not what an English court can do. So I'm wondering whether if, if every single contract they placed over the 30-year period was basically the same, whether this judgment really would have ended in the same way. So if they'd always ordered the same quantities, if they'd ordered, always ordered at the same time, if all these little contracts had been identical, 
whether we might have got closer to the certainty that we needed that actually this created an expectation that this was going to carry on and happen again and again. Yeah, but remember, the key point in this entire claim was, if you like, a single potential term to the effect of the termination notice period. That's really what they are arguing about, because Baird had 30% of their business assigned effectively to Marks and Spencers, and they needed, commercially, they needed time, therefore, to regroup and reorganise and look for other customers elsewhere. And you can't find 30% of your business elsewhere overnight. Well, not only that, hadn't they just expanded based on that, if I remember the, the terms as well? So, you know, they were, yeah. Yes, yeah. but the track record, as you say, over 30 years meant that they were highly commercially dependent on Marks and Spencer's business coming through. Uh, and so to terminate it abruptly, that is really the only term that they are bothered about. Yeah. But if I can go back a, a little bit, the, the, the point I was trying to make earlier about picking on to, you know, the distinction between a legal relationship and a legal contract and a commercial relationship, I think it's Lord Justice Judge who makes the point that actually they had a good commercial relationship, but a bad legal one and they really didn't want a legal one. And I think for me that was not bad. They just didn't see it necessary. No, but they, they no, but they, they wanted a good commercial relationship. Yeah. Which they had. I mean they had been doing business together for 30 years. So for me that dichotomy or whether it is a dichotomy because when we teach contract, when you teach commercial contract, we always say, you know, the, the, the perception by the judges, the law is here to facilitate trade, etc, etc. And so that dichotomy of what it is, you know, that lawyers do and what it is that lawyers try to help when actually they do draft a contract for the parties to consolidate that. And clearly here, there is an interesting dichotomy here between the perception of what a contract is legally and what a contract is for businesses. That's the well, the, the law is there to facilitate commerce and trade. Yes, I know. The, but by the same token, English law cannot make contracts for parties. No, 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 completely agree with you. But it was just to complete the thought that, you know, that there was a distinction between what we mean as lawyers with a contract and what and what contracts can do as opposed to what businesses see as a contract as here clearly an encumbrance something you know which would have gone in the way and so for me that is quite interesting to see that you know that train of thought and how we can square that in relation to what it is that we see as lawyers we do so that's the point i was trying to do not think businessmen possibly view lawyers and contracts legal documents which people have to sign as a sort of form of insurance policy Uh, but certainly with their eye on when things go wrong you know you only need a lawyer maybe when things have all gone pear-shaped uh, and and there is a falling out. And that's when parties turn to the small print, if you like, in the thing that they have signed to, to go to their rights. Not, not quite. I think I think there's two. We know we know from the I mean, it's an old study now, but from Beale and Dugdale, they said, they said business actually views contract from two points of views. One is one is yes. dispute prevention. 
right? Yeah. So if I've got a massive deal coming up, the contract is a tool for us to work out in advance what's, what's yeah, going to happen. Yeah, that's what happen. I mean about an insurance policy. Well, no, I think it's it's a setting out of the obligations, right? Are we clear yeah. that we understand? But but the second the second one is is the dispute prevention, right? Something yeah. goes wrong. Now let's have a look at the contract. So yeah. it's, it's it's a dual it's a dual purpose though. There's two pur purposes in 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 that that, that business see. Well, um, if you prefer planning to insurance, it's, it's planning, then it's fine. Planning and planning and, 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 and dispute prevention. resolution. Yeah. 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 I'm just, I think I was adding weight to your argument, Maggie. Sorry. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You are agreeing again, Tim. It's, it's, uh, yes. he's, I need to go give and have us a some uh, better, better authorities. The, 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 the question that came up for me, or the, the reason why I, I, I think as I was reading it, was bouncing around a little bit, is on the one hand, you can see this as a, as a rather simple question of morality and law, right? Morally, we all agree that Baird should have probably been given a bit more notice. Right. It seems it seems a bit mean to carry on a relationship for 30 years and then turn around and say, actually, well, get, what get, I would get, say yeah, at this yeah. point is we don't know the full facts. And this is a bit interesting because this one, as, as Severine said at the beginning, was part 24 yeah, yeah. summary judgment. And it's bad that began proceedings. And this was a reverse summary judgment attack, if you like. Marks and Spencer's trying to get rid of this thing before it even got anywhere near a full trial. And that's why we've only got two judges here, I think, in the Court mm. of Appeal. But because it's summary judgment, this is very early or relatively early in the stage of proceedings. Yes. And we certainly don't have what we would now call full disclosure. So Baird would not have had access to all the written documentation that Marks and Spencer's had on file apropos this relationship and what they were thinking and, and, and you know, all, all through those 30 years, that they would have only had a very small part of that through their sort of <clears throat> dealings direct with MS. And so in a sense, they sort of had one hand tied behind their back. They, they didn't have the full armory. And so we will never know whether there would have been more evidence that might have supported them if the matter had got to trial. I, I suppose, and that, that, that also comes into, you know, once you, once you start trying to build the contract, let's say the court would, would have been willing to do this and, and started building the contract, you would have wondered whether there would have always been this notice period. I mean, we really don't know what happened in the relationship for them to turn around so suddenly and say, actually, we're not moving yeah. from you. What happened? What what would have been the case? You know, and you could imagine a term in the contract to this effect if it suddenly turned out that bed was polluting the waters uh, of the of wherever. You would have thought there would have been a clause in the contract that said M&S can get rid of them immediately. Well, even so just that, more simplistically, to, the... to us, it, it now look you know, with the benefit of hindsight, and everyone is always brilliant retrospectively, as it Oh, I were. wish I had more of that, yeah. But, but, <laughs> but now it seems strange that over a 30-year period, no one in the sort of upper echelons of either uh, company ever said to one another, well, what sort of notice would you be giving us 
if, mm. if you did want to go somewhere else, you know, it, it now seems inconceivable, really, that nobody actually yeah. said any of that. I know. And whether they did, and as I say, coming back to this disclosure thing and the evidence that was or wasn't available over a 30-year period, uh, you know, maybe it got lost in the mist of time, maybe it never was said, maybe it wasn't written down. But, but it does seem strange now that th that sort of conversation was not had at some sort of level. <laughs> and do you know who always gives reasonable notice about their upcoming courses? Go, go on, go on. Could it be uh, someplace up north? It, like it is indeed, because <laughs> oh, Newcastle Law School is here by giving you notice of their brand new LLM in Emerging Technologies and the Law. I'm getting better at these segues, I think. Uh, find out how law, economics, politics and society intersect in a digital world. Visit ncl.ac.uk to find out more. Thank you, Newcastle Law School, for sponsoring Unpacking Contract Law and continuing to do so dis despite probably having listened to us. <laughs> yes, thank you very much indeed. I, I tell you the other thing that appeals to me, Tim. I think it was you mentioned RTS flexible mm -hmm. and Karai, if I'm saying it right. You know that one got to the Supreme Court, did it not? About ten years after this, I think something like 2010, 2011. Anyway, if if you look at Lord Justice Mance as he then was, the way he's talking about how we find the contract really resonates with think what the Supreme Court said 10 years on, different constitution of court, I think it was probably Lord Clark, saying about the essentials, if you like. Mm. I hadn't picked up I hadn't picked up on that composition. I'm well saying. Lord yeah, just yeah. I made a note because Lord Justice Mance said for a contract you need agreement on essentials with sufficient certainty. Yeah. And there's an awful lot packed into that, dear student, yes. is there not? Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Offer and acceptance, consideration, intention to create legal relations is the other thing that he's then coming to. And he says separately, intention to create legal relations. And he says both are normally judged objectively. An intention to create legal relations is normally presumed in the case of an express or apparent agreement satisfying this agreement on essentials. But it's otherwise, he says, when it's an implied contract, uh, when it's inferred from conduct, then the party alleging the contract has to show the necessity for implying it. And then if you go 10 years on to Lord Clark in the RTS Flexible Systems case, he says, uh, I think it's paragraph 45, the general principles are not in doubt, he says. And this sort of now he picks up, he doesn't actually refer to Lord Justice Mance at all, I think, in this earlier case, but uh, they're all clear about this. He says whether there is a binding contract between the parties and if so, upon what terms depends upon what they have agreed. It depends not upon their subjective state of mind, but upon a consideration of what was communicated between them by words of conduct and whether that leads objectively to a conclusion that they intended to create legal relations. And then he's got the word and so separately and had agreed upon all the terms which they regarded or the law requires as essential for the formation of legally binding relations. So they're very similar, aren't they? That 10, ten year period, I think. But it's interesting, um, our highest level of courts are constantly underlining that there are a number of requirements and intention to create legal relations and the essential terms, essential to the parties. Although those two things are very closely related, they are separate and distinct stages of thinking. And as Lord Justice Mance says, you really ought to start with the terms first, 
and 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 if they have agreed the terms that were essential to them and if that's sufficient so far as the law is concerned to enforce then great when well, then we move to the next stage as it were quite separate idea of and okay generally is there intention to create legal relations so very clearly making a distinction between agreement of terms and intention to create legal relations and i think there's a real risk of sort of conflating those two things does that sort of make any sense to anyone yes it does and um, i think so if we go back to rts but also you know when there are terms missing the courts usually look at performance and here i guess that is the biggest hurdle because technically the 30 years which have gone previously as i think i agree with what you said earlier tim if that you know we don't know but if every iteration of season or i don't even know whether there are more than one season and maybe there were different yeah yeah parts of performance contract for want of a better word per year if those terms had been similar and i think if they had been similar that would have been surely mentioned by baird as a really big ammunition to say okay we never entered into a contract but look at all the 30 years you've always look you know you've always ordered yes but that, that that's yeah, but that's really the key point, isn't it? I know, that's what I mean. That you know, They didn't really talk about termination terms. Those terms are not relevant to the one that they're really bothered about now. There's a I know, but in order to, in, you know, I'm just saying that whichever way we look at the hurdles were too big to imply a contract because there was nothing to imply it into and also even though technically there had been performance as you said maggie of some relationship then that cannot be taken into consideration either so whichever way we are trying to find arguments to see that indeed there was contract we can't because technically it's not also uh, necessary but the, the the final thing which is which comes to mind if so in the same way that um you know tim you mentioned if the terms had been similar why three years you know if they had asked for a year notice would it have been different yeah, i mean the three years thing sounds like a negotiating stance mm -hmm. that baird would have taken had they got around to thinking about a, a, a contract an umbrella contract as i would think of it Yes, govern the overall relationship, not season by season one. So it yeah. sounds like an a, an opening position, if you like, or the best position for Baird. And in a sense, that is unhelpful legally to Baird's own position. Yes. Because, as, as Severin, you're saying, really, the answer is, well, where the hell is three years as an item come from? Yes. Yes. And there's likely to be a response to that, which is a different one, a lesser bit. Do you know what I mean? So that in itself undermines this idea that uh, it could only be a three-year term. It was obvious, the school of the bleeding obvious again. It was oh, the, the bleeding obvious oh, well done, that the, the term <laughs> necessary for termination yes. was a three-year period. Well, well, hell, how, why? You know, that that's the real problem, I think. Yes. But is, is there something wrong here in that 
or, or wrong, wrong with the law in that sense, because that was the second part. I think I was mentioning on the one hand that this whole law and morality point of view, that morally they oh, might be obliged. Oh, you don't want to get yeah. hung up. But we're not going to. We're not going to. We're going to move right past that. And 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 the other the other question that then came up is 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 this contract law having difficulty in capturing the reality of business relationships? Are, are we because I think we can all agree there was some kind of expectation that this would continue, whatever it might have been, even even if we don't take the promisee objectivity in this sense, it, it was it, it, an outsider would have still assumed that there'd be something. Is this is this is this law just not being able and I'm, I'm framing it in a way that's going to hopefully spark a discussion, but is this law being incapable of capturing the reality of what business relationships actually look like. Well, you you said a few minutes ago about morality, and I would take a positivist stance, I suppose, and say law and morals are different, mm -hmm. uh, although there might be an overlap in, in some respects. Similarly, I think I would say in response to you that by analogy, in a sense, commerce, day-to-day -day business activity and relationships and the way in business people do business with one another and how they behave it is a distinct concept from the law although just like law and morality uh, we hope there is a considerable overlap between the two in other words the law will reflect what business people think is acceptable rather than them being exactly the same but isn't law trying to capture that? I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I, I think Severini is going to come in here on a different... I think I would sort of be devil's advocate with you and say, is it necessarily essential that law and commerce are exactly as one? I, I, I don't see that it's necessary. There, there might be some activities that commercially go on, which business people think is acceptable, and that's the way they do business. And it's not always necessary, therefore, for the law to be concerned with that. So what happens on a day-to-day -day trading activity might not need the law policing it, as it were. Oh, okay. So, as long you know the 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 relationship is of equal strength. I well, you know, even that's a problem, isn't it? Because oh, the English I law don't know. Is, we right. have no real I, mechanisms I, I for. I'd, I'd like to get in, So, I'd I'd like to. I'll bring back relational contract into into the mix because the one thing which is interesting in this decision is that. Relational contract and the fact that the bed wanted a, a good faith term was really dismissed out of hand very quickly. That's never going to work. And so if we have a look at how the law has evolved and how relational contracts are being discussed so much more by the courts, um, the post office case shows that it is now more than an academic discussion and the courts are trying to give some kind of defining contour to this notion of relational contract and so the impact of uh, legat as he then was judgment in the Yamsen case is that I think there is a recognition by the courts that the traditional dichotomy of commercial contract between either 
too extreme of either a fiduciary a fiduciary relationship or a commercial relationship of the parties being at arm's length is too simplistic. So in that, I think the judges, the courts recognize that the law is evolving slowly, but the law is nevertheless evolving. And it's not just the judges, it's also... So the British Institute of Commercial and Comparative Law in its uh, uh, concept note back in at the beginning of COVID asking the question, is contract law as a tool flexible enough to allow to deal with an event such as COVID-19, which paralyzed everything. So I think for me, that is actually quite interesting to go back to this decision and see how it's actually quite a short decision mm. and a unanimous decision at that, where there was not much discussion on, it was simply said they had a good commercial relationship, but that there is a distinction. And so therefore, I go back to what you said at the beginning. So Yes, I think have moved on since this decision in relation to the law has always, you know, lawyers have always recognized the need to support businesses in what they need. And so for me, this is the law has moved on. So you think it will be decided differently now? I don't know whether it would, because the the the, the I have very much sympathy with Baird, of course, but the hurdles are too big, I think, because Baird... So we don't know what made uh, Baird and uh, Marks and Spencer make the point of not entering their any terms in writing to keep the flexibility because we don't know whether there was maybe not pressure, but, you know, it is clear that Baird had a lot to lose by not agreeing to much. Yes, but, but I suppose equally, they may have taken the view, if we make a point about this, yes. if we draw attention to this thing, then that is going to be the seeds of our own disaster. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Have quite possibly just sort of carried on in yeah. the hope, if yeah. you like, that things were going to jog along in the future as they had done in the past. So it was and we, and we can't more forget than Baird, entitlement. Baird benefited from that as well, didn't they? Yes. I mean, Baird benefited from this flexibility as well. So one, one could say in, in that respect, right, because they could have said, you know, if a more lucrative contract came along with Well, we don't, we don't supplier, know what other opportunities they had. I mean, I, I did... But, you know, they could, have, they could have acted in the same way, right? Yeah, well, well we don't know what other possibilities they had but given that they were the claimant here and brought proceedings the inference is that they actually had more to lose than anyone here or they yes. wouldn't have tried this really I maybe think. there is an interesting piece of research to do to see where i, I did out of interest have a look online to see if they're still in business and, and well, bed, yeah, I oh, go on. Bed happily yeah. are still in business so good yeah. for them they good have survived them. the ordeal of working with mns <laughs> and not not that MS is doing particularly well. So Okay, and, and wonder whether they are 
you know, maybe still working with him. I have no idea, but yeah, maybe an interesting piece of research here to look at. But, but Severine, your point about about good faith and, you know, a relational contract, yes, this might fall within your label of relational contract, but so far as English law is concerned, you'd still be hung up with this idea of an implied term and the idea of necessity and being able to nail down in much greater precision that English law can accept what you mean by good faith in this setting. And it might be very, very much limited than you are hoping for, or certainly Baird is hoping for. And that Absolutely. comes right back to the central question as to the reasonable notice period. And is that three years is the only possibility? And that that's the difficult I know. And, and, and therefore, you know, to the question that Tim asked, you know, would it be decided differently today? Probably not. because well, without, without the full you know, disclosure I think, of yes. passed between I, the parties yeah, the full I think trial, it. I think you it's know. impossible to yes. say. But on, on, yeah. on the essence of we what we've got now, if it was summary judgment heard now, I don't know what you think about this, Severine, but I'm going to say, stick my neck out here. If this was heard today in exactly the same manner, as it were, summary judgment on the limited evidence that was available in 2001, even with the development of relational contracts and good faith, I don't think there would be any difference going on here because I don't think the either. very strict rule that English yes. takes to an implied term. Yes. Yes, I, I, and an implied. I think I agree with that. That's yeah, I think yeah. my God, I, I think that the, the lack of certainty of around what it would be. Yeah, this is this wow. is. Wow, right. shall we? Shall we talk now? about estoppel or do something? We need, do we need, move move do on we, quickly. Do we, do we need Stop to record? While we're ahead. Do we need to record this moment? <laughs> Podcast <laughs> number twenty-one. The three of us agree. They all, they all break down. Are we agreed on estoppel? Estoppel wasn't a runner either. No. No. Got it. Yeah. Well, that's it then. Thanks for listening. Okay. Uh, well, that's us done. Well, well, well look, if, if a student is still listening after 40 minutes, poor listener, if you're still listening, do, do I, 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 our would, apologies. I would just say this was estoppel by convention. So yes. if anyone wants to look that up in a textbook, this is what they're on about. I mean, uh, in other words, that the parties were behaving uh, on an assumed uh, state of affairs and it would be unconscionable, there's that lovely equity word, to suddenly go against that assumed state of affairs. Um, all of that might actually be so here, I think, but um, what was the problem is that estoppel generally, moving away from proprietary estoppel, is, is that idea of a shield rather than a sword. In other words, it's a defense rather than a, a claim. And unfortunately, Baird is trying to use this as a, as a claim. Yes. That is, we have, a, we have a right in equity for a particular notice period, and we are asserting it to be three years because uh, you and I, M&S, have been conducting ourselves on that basis. But doesn't really work does it i think i think that the the point probably to to note here that is if if um lady hell was was hesitant to to throw over a stopple and consideration in in mwb then they were certainly not going to do it in in at this stage in this case right at, at you know summary judgment style this no. was not going to happen here right they, they were not this was not the case 
to say, you know, we're going to follow Walton stores or whatever. You're going to take the Australian ah, approach. There's an interesting thought it. on that. I don't know if you've looked at that. You know, uh, Severine talked about the Australian. Uh, yeah, exactly. In Walton's yeah. stores. Yes. Whether estoppel would give rise to a, a, a right of action, as it yes. were. I think it's Lord Justice Mance, if anyone's bothered to look back at the... I think it is, but I might be wrong. Uh, in this quite. case, in bed textiles, I think he says at one point, uh, quite possibly, even under English law, uh, an English court would do the same thing as uh, Walton Store's Australian court found, but for different reasons uh, and a estoppel, because in that case... Uh, the sale transfer had all gone through, save for the formalities of land registration in some official uh, central government unit, as it were. So I think Lord Justice Mance is saying that would give rise to an estoppel because all the elements of the transfer were complete and therefore it would be, uh, proprietary, if you like, unconscionable to uh, deny that illegal right and entitlement purely on the fact that it hadn't been registered correctly with the central authorities. So still used in a defensive situation, I think is what he's saying there, mm -hmm. rather than as, as the basis of a cause of action. So I think he's suggesting that uh, Wilton Stores could fit in English law with the same outcome, but for a different reason. Does that make yes. sense? Yes, it does. Yeah, right. I think that's well, somewhere we, right, right night, towards night, the end everyone. of this judgment. To... That was, yes, yes. <laughs> we seem to have stopped there. Anyone got any other interesting thoughts? Clearly, we need to find different cases where we don't agree. <laughs> yeah, so maybe, maybe we've just no, been playing it safe. You can't disagree all of the time and you can't... No, that is not true. That is not yeah, true. Yeah, that yeah, is not yeah, true. Yeah, yeah, so there's can't. nothing yeah. wrong with healthy debate. Quite, and I think what a what a statement what a statement to end on, I I think, and and just a reminder to our listeners, we love getting your questions, and in fact, our next podcast is is arising from um, uh, one of our listeners sending in a request for a case, so please do keep that coming. Uh, unpacking law at gmail .com, um, if you'd like to send so us your you request. So, what is going to be, or do we keep the secret until it is revealed? Well, we, we should, should probably, probably make sure, sure we've actually recorded it before we promise what we're going to do, because, you know, we don't want to create, we don't want to create expectations, do we? <laughs> well, I suppose one could say that we are responsive and we are here to serve, as it were, not just to entertain ourselves, but we hope that some of But largely to entertain ourselves. Well, okay, that, that's possibly the most important <laughs> for, for most of us. But, um, you know, actually, we, we get a lot out of this, I would say. An because enormous we, amount. We've, we've had to look at cases in far more detail uh, and with far more sort of uh, scrutiny and trying to think what the others in our little group here might say and what our response to that would be. So, you know, dear listener, we, we get a lot out of it too, but we, we obviously help, hope that you get something. Yes, and it's always... Yes. I did, you know, it was nice for me to get back to that uh, decision it was actually it was and, and and as maggie was saying it's quite nice that i start thinking about things in well, what would what would maggie say to this case or what would severine say to this case that's quite it's, it's quite nice to to have that thought process and that you're not thinking along, along a single track anymore so on that note of uh, agreement 
thank you very much uh, everybody for uh, listening to us and uh, keep listening keep sending your uh, requests and thank you uh, very much uh, all of you wherever you are for keeping up with us that is a really nice uh, thought thank you very and, much and thank you newcastle as ever as ever indeed and luke exactly. and and luke of course yeah for yeah to for actually doing the work on this